Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you all so much. As always, amazing. You guys are so supportive, so incredible, and I am just so incredibly grateful to you. It's much, much appreciated, all that you do, all the emails, all the texts, all the FedExes, just so, so humbling. And I'm so glad that you like the show, and it means a lot. Thank you. And as always, I look at my guest, and I never know what I'm going to say. And uh, this is no exception, because my guest is Kirk Fox, an incredible, incredible comedian and actor and client of mine who I love dearly, and I think the world of, and think the world of his comedy and his talent and his intellect and... It's hard sitting across from Kirk because he is such an incredible person to be next to. They always say that if you want to be a great tennis player, you got to play against the best. And coincidentally, Kirk Fox, world-class tennis player, but what I'm referring to is just being next to somebody who has an incredible wit, an incredible way about him, a guy who some of the greatest comedians in the world always love being around and some of the greatest actors in the world, legendary, love to be around him as well. And some of the most iconic and most powerful television stars always want him to be around. And I think to myself, why do they want him to be around? Do they want him to be around because... He's simply a guy who's funny. Do they want him to be around because he's a guy who maybe is smart and witty? Do they want him around because he's a guy who's 
the most talented guy in the room on every occasion? I don't know what the answer is, but I will say this. There's something to be said for being that guy, the guy who it doesn't matter if it's a banker, a bum, a homeless guy, the biggest television or film star in the world or anywhere in between to have the ability to want people to have you in their life, to want you to be a part of their lives and the fabric of what they do, to want you to share the experience of the work that they take pride in. It's an amazing quality that Kirk Fox has. And he's always had it as long as I've known him. Always been a guy who the comedians respect, other actors respect, storytellers love, and just regular civilians. They find him to be engaging, charming, unique, and has a way about him that's incredibly original. And as long as I've known him, he's been that guy. You don't work with some of these people if you're not that guy. You could be the most talented guy or woman in the world, but if you don't know how to figure out how to navigate around these personalities, strong personalities, wherever you work, you're not going to get what you want and you're not going to get to the next level and you're not going to get more opportunities. People want to be around people that make them feel great, make them feel happy, make them feel like they're in the game, make them feel like they're witty and funny, but also know that they're sitting across from somebody who as at a higher level in many, many ways, but will never make them feel that way. And I think the answer is for most people in any situation you are, whatever profession you're in, that if you can be that person, if you can figure out how to be the person who takes the path of least resistance and creates these strong, wonderful relationships, that lasts the test of time, these people will go to the wall for you. They'll fight for you. They'll push for you. They'll make the call. They'll help you get to the next level because you were everything that they wanted at the time that they wanted you. And if you can figure out how to be that kind of person, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of life and the kind of respected career that Kirk Fox has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. 
I am here with Kirk Fox, and we are here late at night at the fabulous Industry Standard Podcast Studios here in Century City, and it's such a pleasure to see him. I'm always happy when I see him, and I am going to give him the introduction that he deserves. I will say this about Kirk Fox. I want to give him the introduction he deserves, but... He is a guy who's a minimalist when it comes to his bio. So this will probably be the shortest introduction I've ever given a guest, but it's not because of me. I'm going to blame it on my guest who gave me the condensed Reader's Digest version of his bio and wanted me to keep it at this length uh, because he knows how outrageous and how long and how boring my introductions are. So without further ado, here goes. Kirk Fox is an actor, writer, producer, and award-winning stand-up comedian. Fox was the host of the syndicated daytime conflict talk show, The Test, and had a recurring role on NBC's hit comedy series, Parks and Recreation as Sewage Joe. His other acting credits include Nickelodeon's How to Rock, NBC's Community, The Carmichael Show, The Mick, and is a series regular on CBS's hour-long dramedy, Rush Hour. Fox's extensive television background includes multiple guest appearances on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, Conan, as well as his own Comedy Central Presents special. His experience is not only limited to television, though, as Fox has also built an impressive list of film credits, including Forgetting Sarah Marshall, The Postman, Postgrad, The Patriot, and Wyatt Earp. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a man who reminds me of Sam Elliott in the movie Lifeguard, only with a comedic twist. Please welcome a guy who I love very dearly and I think is amazingly talented, Kirk Fox. Wow. I was hoping Sam Elliott would be here. <laughs> now, I remind you of him because of the mustache or just my, uh, my laconic, my posture? No, I think you remind me of him because... I remember the tagline from that movie, Lifeguard, Every Woman's Summertime Dream. And when I look at you, I think to myself, you can have anybody you want. I don't know about that. I mean, I'm sure there's some that I can't have. <laughs> but I guess if you're a lifeguard, you can have anybody. If you know CPR, no one's off limits. <laughs> it's always a good sign when Kirk Fox takes off one of his signature jackets. That means shit's about to go down. Where you have me stationed, it's pretty hot. Took a lot to get here. Yeah. I had a run-in with the security. I don't know if you realize how protected you are, but taking off the jacket doesn't really mean I'll that much. Something. If these guys were around in 1963, Kennedy would still be alive today. They, they had you protected, except he just put me in the elevator. <laughs> You were coming down to meet me, and I was already there, so I could have taken him out. I could have taken just about everybody out if I was armed. I have so many things to ask you. Well, you can ask. It doesn't mean you'll get any of them answered. I'm just trying to be here. I I didn't want to be here. I know that, and there's reasons for everything, and maybe we'll get into those. 
I have so many things to ask you. I think the first thing I want to ask you is this. From the moment I met you, I believe it was at the Actors Gang, which was Tim Robbins' tremendous acting troupe here in Los Angeles. Ned Bellamy. Ned's the other partner with, with Tim. I love Ned he, Bellamy. He and Tim are pals. And so I met Kirk there, and there was just something about him when I first met him, and I think he was just starting to think about stand-up. I think I'd seen you earlier in the night. I saw you in the parking lot of the comedy store. You were, had been up there with Dane. And I said, you know, you should think about me. And I'd been doing comedy, I think, two weeks. But I felt good about what I had done. And then I saw you later in the evening. Which took longer, me to work with you or you to do the podcast? I, I, well, doing the podcast is probably <laughs> working before you're working for me. <laughs> Barry, you've gotten to the point in your career where you don't need to do much heavy lifting. <laughs> Apparently, because of my back is thrown out of yeah, the Yeah, but you're not going to go out of your way. You know what? You, you can guide someone in the right direction if they have questions, but you're not out hunting these days. I think that's an interesting thing that you're saying. I love these podcasts because they go in all different directions. Well, this first of all, this podcast is not about me. This could be an intervention with you. That could be it too. That's another thing we could talk about. I could be here to ask you a lot of questions. And you will. This is free forum. <laughs> There's this philosophy always is that if somebody is feeling something or thinking it about you, then it's valid, even if you don't think it's valid. No one knows our work ethics like ourselves. No one knows what we do except ourselves ultimately because nobody's around us for all the hours that we're in the earth and if someone's ourselves. lashing out at someone they're only lashing out at themselves if anyone's ever attacking management or agents the truth is they're attacking themselves for not giving their team more to work with at the end of the day it always comes down to the talent but how come managers and agents don't attack talent new day man New world. Does that mean they used to attack talent? They used to have to. But now there's just no need. You know, if someone wants someone, they'll track them down. Comes down to followers and social media and what your last movie did. Tough to sell someone that isn't going to bring in cash. It's just a, a new world. You know that. Tough to get someone in a room just on talent unless they're young. If they're really young, I think they'll look at someone, maybe a, a new surprise. So that's an interesting thing you said, too. I don't mean to shine a light on us, but obviously, to those of you who don't know out there, Kirk and I work together. After this podcast, he may decide he doesn't want to work with me. but Or I maybe have decided that years ago. <laughs> years ago. And I still do, because you might be just like everybody else. That's true. The fact that I get along with you and you can take a call and maybe get me more money. Why would I go to somebody else when you make me laugh and you're tired and you're like an older version of me, but only a few years older. I just look younger. Yes, you do. Much better looking, much slimmer, much more athletic. But I think I want to talk about this a little more. So in your opinion, like you just said something earlier, you said, let's face it, Barry, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do any heavy lifting. You're at that stage. So why does somebody like me then want to work with somebody like you and is excited when he sees you and is happy when he sees you and wants to come to the set and is excited about the kind of work you do? And when you send me a clip, 
I really genuinely am blown away by it. We want that which we can't attain. You want me because I don't seem to give you what you need. You don't want to give up on me yet because you feel it's right around the corner of me hitting. I mean, what our relationship is, I mean, what is it? Well, it's like a lot of different relationships. You have questions about how things can go better. It all comes down to me. I'm exactly where I've put myself. I give you nothing to sell but me, and, that, and that's not enough. When you say you give me nothing to sell but you, does that mean... It means where I'm at in my career, no one gives a fuck. But you said you give you nobody to sell but you. I'd like to think that you got to see Kirk Fox. But enough people know me, and there's no one lining up to see Kirk Fox. We, we see that it's tough to get into rooms. doesn't matter how good you are. There's, there's 20 guys ahead of me that can open a movie or have had shows, have starred on shows. I'm good when I get there. But it's just tough to get there. I'm 90%. What does that mean? It means nine out of 10 guys are like me. They're great. They're just not getting the shots. So they got to create their own shot. So they're making their own things and they're getting it out there. And you can make a, you can make a short film. You can get it seen. But I'm exactly where I have put myself. I have no problem with you. I have no problem with Hollywood. You know, my only problem at times is possibly with myself. A little lazy, rather golf, play tennis, should be writing scripts, should be writing pilots, but I'm not. So you get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, you say, I'm lazy. Well, with regards to career, of course. I should be shooting films, making shorts. No, I know that. I'm talking about when you get a role. Oh, when I get a role, of, of course I dive in. I, I'm an athlete. I want to win it. I want to know my lines. I want to hit my mark. I don't ever want to slow down a production. Yeah, you always are a thousand percent prepared when you're on a job. Yeah, when I, when I get a job. So when you're there, you aren't one of the 90. You're one of the 10%. Of course, when, when I'm there. And every role you've ever done, you've never looked at the footage and said, I really sucked and didn't give any effort. I was lazy with that performance. No, that's never no, happened, that's right? not. That's not when I'm lazy. And one other thing that I want to clarify for the audience, when you go on stage, I never feel there's a time when you go on and you're lazy from the moment you say hello or sometimes you don't say hello to the moment it closes. I treat every set like it's my last. So you're just explaining and telling yourself and me why I work with you because when you're on the set and when you're on the stage, I rarely see anybody who gives more effort to the craft of stand-up and acting than you. Oh, I agree. It, it's the hunt of the job that, when, and lazy may not even be the right word because I'm at peace. I never go to bed thinking I, I didn't give my day the best effort. But I'm golfing, I'm playing tennis. I'm just trying to love. I'm just trying to cultivate kindness. But I'm certainly not in the game. Well, you're working on something right now where you're in the game. Well, a little. But there's a lot of people who tried to be in that particular show and you earned it and you got it over another actor who would be considered pretty reputable. Yeah, well, he was working on another show. 
He had to choose one. And I'm glad he did. I'm, I'm having fun. I mean, you know, it's a great situation where you go into a role that's named after the person that supposedly they want to have the role. And you go in and they say, you're our guy. And you get there and there's five other people in the waiting room. And you're like, wait, didn't they tell me I was the guy? And then you realize you have to go in and still earn it, even though they told you that you're the guy and you're their favorite. And you have to deliver some nuance that's so special that makes them want to change the character's name to your name. I mean, some of that might be on on point. I mean, when I got the role, they realized they just should call the character Fox. How often does that happen? I don't know. I don't work that much. (laughs) I think this is important for the audience. This is one of the things that I think is your winning formula. You don't think it's a winning formula. I definitely have one because I sleep when I want. (laughs) I I, I can sleep eight hours. I'm regular. What's that like? It's awesome. I dream whatever I want to think about. I dream. I meditate every day. I'm a Buddhist in training. I'm just about love, man. So if I ever come off irritable, I'm certainly not. I'm just, I just know what I'm talking about with regards to me. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And no one knows you better than you. But what I wanted to share is that your winning formula is I get a fraction of the shots that the other people get. I don't really get a chance to work as much as I want to work. Yet, if anybody listening to this were to go to Kirk Fox's IMDb page, there's a hundred different things on there. There's a plethora of television shows. There's probably over 20 feature films that you've been with great people from Kevin Costner to Jason Segel, who is one of my favorite actors of all time because he's so real all the time. I'm, but, I'm definitely Hall of Fame. I'm definitely batting 500. Russ, my last Russ, 10 auditions, I've booked five of them, but that's 10 auditions in two years. I mean, movies with Chris Cooper, Mel Gibson, Antonio Banderas directed you, Matt Dillon, 
Gene Hackman, Michael Keaton. So when people look at your resume, there's comedians out there who are doing comedy, who want to be an actor, and they can't even get arrested. I know a lot of comedians that have been arrested. I would bet if anybody were to look at Kirk Fox's IMDb page and look at other stand-up comedians who happen to be actors, and you talk about 90 versus 10, you are definitely in the 10% club or less, that top 10% of comedians who are actors who work and work in significant films and television projects. Parks and Recreation, you know, that's not hanging with Mr. Cooper. You know, working with Heath Ledger, that's not working with Dustin Diamond. You've worked with amazing people throughout your career. And really, we're talking about 10 to 12 years of time, maybe 15 at the most. Do you tell me how many actors who are comedians who've worked with these people? Very few. Yet, from your perspective, deservedly, you're not getting the opportunities that you want. And I'll say it again, but that's my fault. But isn't it frustrating for everybody in any profession when there's the people that generate their own things and are constantly out there creating, whether they're a lawyer or they're a doctor or they're a comedian or an actor, but there's also the examples of the people who never did any of that. And, you know, I don't think Ray Romano was out writing scripts and shooting videos, but he was on a show for seven years and made $40 million this last year. And as an actor, if you saw the show Vinyl, he was the guy who stood out as an actor. So there's people who have made it. Kevin James wasn't shooting his own videos and writing script after script, but he got cast in King of Queens. Brett Butler wasn't creating things and writing things. She got cast in Grace Under Fire and she made millions of dollars. Aziz Ansari was doing late night sets at the Comedy Cellar for $10. The guy auditioned for Parks and Recreation. You look at his resume before Parks and Recreation. The formula isn't always that way, but it well, can- There's truly no formula. I'm just talking about I can only talk about myself, what I know I should be doing. I'm not talking about anyone else. I'm not talking about Roseanne or Ray or I'm, we all get, we all get there, how we get there or we don't get there. I'm just talking about when I say I'm lazy because this is what triggered that whole thing. It's just how I spend my days. And I'm okay with it. Should I be writing scripts? Yes. You write every day. You get up and you go to that coffee bean and you write every day. You know, and when I say I'm writing, listen, I could be writing the same paragraph over and over. I know you write every day. Not as much as you think. Writing jokes, not writing scripts, not writing pilots. Look at your Twitter feed, okay? Oh. Every day. And they're funny. Yeah. They're always funny. I agree. You I... created a serial killer character on Periscope that had over three million people watching. Well, three they, million. They wanted me to get that killer. They thought it might be me. So you have created things. Not really. I remember the special night at a really great comedy venue, the Comedy and Magic Club. And I saw you walking around the hallways and... There's people in these rooms that are there occasionally that are geniuses. And the late Gary Shandling was there this one night, and he was trying out stuff, doing his set. 
and he searched out one person to ask him what they thought of his set, and it was you. What does that tell you? Well, he, he was curious what I thought. I think we'd probably been talking about it beforehand. I like Gary. But he's asking you. He's not asking the other 15 comedians that are there. You know, Kevin Nealon, if you haven't seen Kevin Nealon or any of you people, if you haven't gone to a show, this is one of the most naturally purest funny people out there, nicest guys. There is no comic that I know of except for you, Kirk, who can break Kevin Nealon. I've seen it over and over again. I've seen the videos. I've heard people talk about it. He does these shows. He sits down, he does interviews, and he does sort of like a Martin Shortish kind of character, Jiminy Glick, where he used to take people down a little bit, but in a snarky way. But Kevin doesn't do it that way. It's just, a, goes, Q, it's just a Q&A. It's a Q&A where he goes toe-to-toe with people, and he always wins, except when he's across from Kirk. We just have a lot of fun, and I can make him laugh, and, and that's what it is. Who else makes him laugh on stage? I don't watch a lot of them, but uh, he and I are pals, and yeah, I, I can break him. You talk about all the things that I love about you as a manager, and you know, you talk about your life, you play tennis, you play golf, and things like that, and this isn't an indictment of me. I don't play tennis for recreation. I don't play golf. I'm not doing these things. I'm getting up at 5.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, starting my day and ending it here with this podcast probably and then going to edit. But the fact is, is that you have a wonderful life. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I always feel like I don't have as wonderful a life because I'm always thinking about how am I going to be able to help the people who I love being around and I love their talent to get where they want to go with my talent and their talent. Well, you don't have to worry about me because I don't want to go anywhere. I've made no effort to get to some imaginary superstardom. But when you got cast in Rush Hour, which was a huge show with Bill Lawrence running it and Jeff Engel was one of the producers. And this is another thing that I love about you. And people might think I'm shining this guy's ass, but I've done 190 something of these podcasts. and Yeah, I, wow, what took you so long to get to me? How many times have I asked you to do the show? Four. And how many times have you said no? Four. <laughs> All right, so so when you got I'm rushed, surprised I said yes here. You, you just sounded like you needed one for tomorrow, for Sunday. Oh, my back was just uh, so bad, and I just knew that you would sympathize with me. But when you got rush hour, it was like one line in the pilot, and you believe in that philosophy. There's no such thing as little parts, only little actors. I just think that every line's important. But this particular pilot, I got the call. I referred them to me because your relationships are so deep, and I should share that as well. Every job I've ever gotten has been from tennis. Tennis is my agent. He just knows everybody, and he has these relationships that stand the test of time that help him get these great, great jobs sometimes. Not all the time. You didn't have a relationship with these last people. You knew them from the comedy club, but they weren't your buddies. Well, it turned out one of them was, but I didn't know at the time. So we were, I was just as surprised when I found out that I play tennis with one of them, with Donnie. And two years ago, Donnie said, I want to put you in something. I'm like, hey, man, I'm here. And then two years later, it was, I used to play tennis with Donnie. 
So tennis again. But what I was going to say about the rush hour gig, I called you and I said, listen, they want you to do the pilot. I believe they want you to come in too and either meet with them or read the line or something. And I'm thinking to myself, this is one line. You know, I have a photographic memory so I can tell you exactly how that conversation went because we were at our little Italian restaurant when you said it's just one line. And it's like, that's all right. I'll, I'll turn that one line into something. I, I would never say I don't want to do it. So you say you're going to turn that one line into something. Because once I get on a set, then I can dance. It's, it's getting the job that's tricky. But once I'm there, I'm fine. So you're there for one line. And for those of you who don't know, what happens is at the end of the pilot, they're calling him in to take pictures with the cast for the cast photo. And he did, I believe, 12 out of the 13 episodes. 10, but... <laughs> I wanted 12. It was a blast. I love those guys. And uh, it, it was a good run. This is where the fate is so bizarre. How many CBS shows do you know of in the past 10 years that have been canceled in 13 episodes? I can't even name any. But unfortunately... That's part of my magic. You know? <laughs> but unfortunately, you get this big primetime show, huge producers, Bill Lawrence, hugely successful... And your show that you're in gets canceled on CBS. But if it goes, then you're... If it goes, I'm not doing this podcast. <laughs> That's for sure. It was fun. I had a lot of... I had a, a good time. I got to play a detective. Anytime I can wear a badge and a gun and my mustache, I'm happy. That's why my talk show didn't go. Because we had to shave the mustache. Only Dr. Phil could have a mustache, he said. He also said that, you know, we're not selling used cars. You're going to have to shave your mustache. This is an amazing process, and I hope you elaborate on it. Normally, when you're selling a show in syndication, a talk show, and there's 165 episodes, you got to test people. you got to bring people in. you got to audition them, see how they are. They would call Kirk and say, listen, can you come down to the stage today? We're just doing a little something. And he'd get down there and it's like, could you put the suit on? Yeah, we got an audience in here. We just want to do this thing here. Well, the great thing was is I just played some tennis with Dr. Phil. And we were walking to the car. And he said, you know, Jay, who's his son, Jay McGraw, executive producer of The Doctors. He said, you know, Jay's putting together something. And uh, I think you might be right for it. Come by Paramount tomorrow. We'll throw a suit on you and shave you up and... See how you do. Now, I didn't even have a suit. And I ended up borrow, borrowing a, a suit from one of the doctors. <laughs> and it turned out that, you know, Travis Stork, we were the same size. And the funny thing is, is when I got the show, they gave me a, they, they got me a trainer. Because I think they figured it was cheaper to, to build me up than to alter all of those suits. Because <laughs> I ended up wearing a lot of his wardrobe. Travis. But uh, yeah, I went in there and they they had me read a teleprompter and then they say, come back tomorrow. We'll put some people up. I don't believe you ever read a teleprompter before. Not before that. But I couldn't read it. So we put those glasses on. And then uh, after the next day, Phil just said, all right, we're going to go ahead and, you know, make this happen. But I didn't hear about it for the next six months. 
And at one point, I will say that Phil went out on the limb because someone at Tribune, the head of Tribune, wasn't interested in me. Said I was a little too uh, swarmy, smarmy, dirty. And Phil said, well, if, if you don't want Kirk, then you don't want to be in business with me. And then, then we shot it. Those are the kind of people you want on your side. Yeah. I, I got no problem with that. But it was loud. It's not a world I want to dance in. I don't like wearing a suit. I like my stash. If the show had been picked up, would you have asked Phil to get somebody else? I don't know. I think uh, we would have had to make a few changes. I should have been funnier. I should have been a little more adamant about being myself. You know, there's a tele. You know, I had a, an earpiece and people kind of feeding me some lines, and I never. I was never comfortable. I'm happier when I can make my own decisions or not make any decisions. Like I say, I'd, I'd always rather do nothing. This that's the reason I never wanted to do this podcast was just because I don't want to do anything. It's always uncomfortable. You don't seem uncomfortable. Well, once I'm here, but getting here, driving, parking, I just don't want to do anything. Are you a better actor or better stand-up comedian? I'm only lately getting good at stand-up. I've always been able to get laughs, but only lately am I getting comfortable. Up, up until the last year, it was always pretty much a monologue. But I was a good enough actor where I could make it look like I was loose. But I'm never comfortable. Never really wanted to be there. Never talking about the shit I want to talk about. So you're a better actor? No, I'm not. I wouldn't say I'm... I'm pretty good at being myself. I'm not a great actor. I'm good at being who I am. Could I do Shakespeare? Yeah, but it would take a lot of work. I'm good at just delivering a line. I'm great at adding my own lines. Are there comedians that you run into sometimes that stop into the clubs that you're happy for them? Like the other day I was somewhere, Louis Anderson came in, and I was genuinely so happy for him because obviously there's tremendous ups and yeah, downs I love, in this business. I love Louis. And he gets on a show, we can't get an acting job the way he wants to get it anymore. So he's just relegated to doing stand-up in Las Vegas and sometimes in these rooms where Thunder Down Under was the opening act. And somebody like Louis C.K., just like the people who've gone out of the way for you and your career, who you know, and Zach said, this is the guy to play the mother and you get that opportunity and then magic happens. Are there people like that in the clubs that come in that you genuinely are happy for and there's something about them that you're just rooting for all the time? Or I got to be honest, I'm rooting for everybody I meet. Anyone I come across, I give them good thoughts. I'm always there to nudge them in the right direction if I can. I'll always listen. I'll, I'll always tag jokes. I'm I'm happy for anybody who's trying to make a room laugh. I don't pinpoint anyone and say, "Man, I'm happy for I'm I'm happy for anyone that I come across." I'm just trying to love. I'm just trying to breathe it in and just just trying to be. Well, that's another thing about you that I've always found is that I've never met anybody in this career 
that didn't like you and didn't respect you. And I don't know if you feel like you have enemies or people in the club that you just rub you the wrong way, but I never... Even if you're being rubbed the wrong way, you're still being rubbed. <laughs> I have no problem with anybody. And if you have a problem with someone, the problem is with yourself for allowing someone to bother you. You know, something happened the other day that I want to share with you because you've been great to my kids and you taught them tennis and I'll never forget that day. And I wondered if I was being a good father or a bad father or what kind of person I was. We were driving up to school and there was construction and this woman said, you can't drive up to the classrooms and it's like a long walk. And my older son went toe to toe with her and said, how come we can't go in there? How come that car got to go? Why won't you let us through? Eight things in a row trying to get where he wanted to go. My other son just picked up his backpack, his bag, and ignored the difficulty of this woman and just started walking. And I didn't do anything. I didn't reprimand my son. I just observed him. And I thought to myself, God, who am I? I, th I just think it's easier to be kind. It just takes a lot less work. And I do whatever I can to not have to do too much work. And it's just the way, it's just the way I was raised. I mean, my dad, every day, you know, get out of bed, stand on your head, take a deep breath and say love. That was his, that was how he greeted the, his five children. Isn't it wonderful? What, what? When we as Earth planet travelers become aware of our relativity with the great universal life force. That's how he that's how he lived, man. He was a handyman, you know, down in Pacific Beach, worked in La Jolla. They all liked him in La Jolla, all the rich people. We never had money, but they liked having him around. And it's the same way I've lived. I've always I've always been country club. I've always liked rich people and they've always liked having me around. And I, I think it was just instilled in me because Pacific Beach, we go up to La Jolla. That's why I play tennis and golf. I just, I'm country club, man. And, and I'm okay with it because I, I can be, you know, I can be broke also. Most of the money I make, I give away. I just, I just, would rather give it to others. I remember you telling me a story where at the coffee meet or wherever it was, you'd bring these beautiful shirts down to this homeless guy. That was my favorite thing because handsome Ron, <laughs> I saw him actually recently again. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I gave him a bag of clothes once, real nice bag of clothing. I saw him a few months later and he had just kept the bag. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, where's all those shirts? He's like, oh, shit. I, I thought it was just to show me the shape of the bag. <laughs> and it's like, oh, that makes sense. Because I remember as a kid, we would just, we'd, we'd get a box with a toy in there. And we would just play in the box. But then I also, one time I gave him $3. 
And then I saw him a, a month later and he came up to me and he handed me $3. I said, Ron, what, what's that? And he's like, you know, you gave me three bucks, you know, a few weeks ago or a month ago. I was like, hey man, it, you know, it wasn't a loan. He's like, I needed it just to get back on my feet. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, are you still homeless? He's like, yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? Where were you starting? Where were you starting from if it took you three dollars to get back to homeless? <laughs> Man, that's handsome Ron. And I said I hadn't seen him in I hadn't seen him in a while. And the great thing is, this guy's beautiful. But you, you think all homeless guys get action? Oh, this guy does. This guy is a masseuse. He's so, even got a table. So he takes <laughs> so he takes the girls back to where? I'm sure he goes there, wherever there. But for a long time when I was playing tennis with, with uh, Phil, with Dr. Phil, there was always a lot of food laid out. <laughs> and he'd always give me a lot to take. And I never told him, but on the way home, I'd... There's a bunch of homeless that I fed every night. They'd wait for me at a certain corner. But not all of it, Dr. Phil, but there was so much you made me take <laughs> that there was no way I could eat it all, especially when I would restock the next day. You said you've always loved being around rich people, but rich people love being around you. Well, because I never ask for anything, and I'm funny, and I'm a nice guy. I've never wanted anything so but it's always tennis you know teaching tennis you know you give a billionaire a backhand that's a pretty big thing but every movie i ever got was through tennis my first 15 or 20 tennis anyone that came from tennis of course you made that movie with donald yeah but donald, but, but donald and i were playing tennis and our friendship and the whole thing was came from tennis you wrote that movie with him. Yeah. We've never said I wasn't capable of writing. I wrote Polly Shore's Dead also. I mean, I can complete a script, but uh, oh, I can write. I, I have some scripts. Just not big on finishing. My career is the slow play. Hey, everybody. I'm really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. 
industrystandardwater.com and you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way back. We'll go Let's as far go. as you need, Let's man. Let's go back to the San Diego area. Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, what it was like, and what was the first inspiration to get into this crazy business? There was no inspiration to get into this business. I went to college, and I was going to play tennis, and... Then when I came to Hollywood after college, I was just teaching tennis. How did you get into tennis? Why tennis? Your dad wasn't playing tennis. Your brothers and sisters weren't playing tennis. I liked it. It was solitary. I saw a tennis racket and a, a tennis ball, and there was a garage door next door. And I just started hitting the tennis ball against that garage door. I liked the sound it made. I liked the thump. I liked that I could do it by myself. I could always find a wall. And then uh, my mom would bake bread every Sunday. And I would take a loaf of bread down to the Pacific Beach Rec Center. There was a guy there named Dave Rath, not the manager, but Dave Rath was a, a tennis pro down in San Diego. He had half a thumb. He had lost that thumb at a construction site when he was younger. But I would give him a loaf of bread every Sunday and that got me a few tennis lessons during the week. He liked that home cooking. When someone wouldn't show up, I would get the tennis lesson. So I was playing tennis and baseball, soccer. I'm an athlete. When did you know you were better at tennis than the other kids? Well, I always knew that I was pretty good. I was tough to beat. So did you start having aspirations of thinking I could parlay this into a scholarship at college? No, I was just uh, I was just having fun, man. My whole life has just been chasing girls and laughing and not working too hard. I could have worked harder at tennis. I didn't train very hard. I was just floating. So you don't get a scholarship to play tennis in college, or you do? Uh, there were there was offers, but I went to UC San Diego. Because my sister filled out the filled out the application because she had gone there. It was easy. I just took whatever was easy. Okay, so how do you get to the point where you start beating everybody in tennis? Obviously, I would beat most of them, but for some reason, I was clearly not beating who I should have been beating. I just did not have the work ethic. And there was some mental weakness. I didn't have the killer instinct. Probably didn't have a good enough backhand back then in between. But you were getting to the point where you saw that you were closing in on some worldwide rankings. Yeah, but once again, <laughs> it's tough. Tough to win. It's got to be your whole life. And it was never my whole life. You got to train eight hours a day. You got to be, you got to spend a couple hundred grand out there traveling, playing these tournaments. It's not cheap. If you had to do it all over again, I could put you back right then knowing what you know now, what would you do? The exact same thing. I had so much fun. There's no one has had a better life than I have. Were you the kind of guy who would be out all night trying to get a girl and you'd be late to the tennis tournament? No, I knew enough to show up. I was always responsible. I, I'd show up for when I have to work. When I have to work, I'm, I'm on time. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? It was just a, a slow fade, a slow fade to black. 
I came to I came to LA and just I had my basket of tennis balls and I just started teaching tennis and blinked and 10 years went by. I didn't start stand up till deep in my 30s. But how did you get to that point where you wanted to act or do stand up? I st- I got to be honest with you. I'm still not at that point. But you have to step on a stage and there has to be inspiration to get there. Well, I I I'm enjoying you mean what made me want to do stand-up comedy? The first time, yeah. Because there was nothing left. I needed something to do at night. My life hadn't begun yet. I was funny. I'd, I'd written that movie with Polly Shore. Uh, and I'd always, I'd been hanging around Polly for five years at the comedy store, but not doing stand-up. Maybe for 10 years I was friends with Polly. He'd go on the road, I'd go with him, I'd write, you know, I'd write jokes, I'd give him jokes and they'd get laughs. And eventually I was like, man, I should try this. So November 10th, 2002, I went on stage at the comedy store. How did it go? Well, it was three minutes and there was no laughs until the end when I said this was funny in front of the mirror. <laughs> and, then, and then they laughed and I was like, oh, I get it. But that was my first time on stage, November 10th, 2002. And the other night was number 3,000. And my 3,000th time, Kevin Hart brought me up at the comedy store last week. He popped in and did a half hour and then brought me up. And it was, I was okay with it. I mean, it was a seamless transition and they kept laughing and it's just jokes. I didn't, I didn't let it phase me. I mean, he's one of the biggest in the world. But once he was off that stage, then it was my turn. And it's just a different chapter. When you're about to go on stage and they're just about to introduce you and then somebody says, hey, there's a special guest and he goes on. I know you're not a fearful person. I like to get to the comedy store and go on. The longer I wait, the more I I just get squirrely. The best part of the Kevin Hart was is when I went up, I guess when I was going up and my phone must have fallen out because then as I started talking, he's like, Kirk. And then he came up and he gave me my phone back. And I was like, man, I can't believe, you know, and he's a pickpocket. <laughs> I mean, Kevin, is it that necessary? I mean, he's quick. He's small. He was, he's right at pocket level. <laughs> and I got a big laugh and he laughed. And then it was... From that moment, it was fine, but you never know. Because you took the risk going after the Goliath and it worked. I was just open. I think the key to anything is just, you just want to be open. You take a risk. You call a African-American man a pickpocket. Well, I wasn't thinking that. I just thought, you know. And so you take the risk, you go toe-to-toe, and it works. I don't even think Kevin's an (laughs) African-American. He's just a man. I don't see color. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, but that was number 3,000, and I'm just getting comfy. So what am I, how many years in? 14? You know, when when I was starting, all my peers were 15 years in, so I feel fine where I'm at. Was there a gig that you got before you did stand-up that wasn't because of tennis? No. And it was funny. I, I'll tell you this, which is which is... A real funny story is I had never gotten to audition for a sitcom. But as soon as I started doing stand-up, 
you know, I, I had some friends at UTA that were just kind of hip pocketing me because I was teaching tennis to Peter Benedict and Jay Suris. So these guys were always, you know, taking care of me because I fixed their tennis, but we we're all friends. And there was an audition for this show called Rodney. That was Rodney Carrington. Yeah, and it was my first sitcom audition. And they're like, they're only looking at stand-ups. I'm like, tell them I'm a stand-up. And I think I'd been doing stand-up for a year, maybe. And I went in there, and I got it. I got, I got that job because they thought I was, a, they heard I was a stand-up. But I booked the job, and then he's like, hey, man, why don't you come out and open for me? And I'm like, okay. And I didn't realize who Rodney Carrington was. And for those of you who don't know, Rodney Carrington is just kind of an anomaly because there's parts of the South where he works and he can sell out theaters and... Arenas. It, w it went from... We jumped on his own. He, you know, he flies on his own jet and he says, hey, you want to come open for me? We're doing a few gigs. I'm like, yeah. He's probably the most successful comedian that most people have never heard of as much as they should. But I went from open mics, like the night before I did an open mic with 10 people. And I loved open mics. I mean, I still, I just, I was having fun at the time. And then I went from 10 people to 4,000 the next night. And my jokes were still working. But I don't, maybe I'd only been doing it six months. But that was... But that was good. That was when that's that was when I started stand up. So that was my first road gig was four thousand people. One of my favorite lines that you ever said to me off stage. You got the gig opening up for Charlie Sheen when he was going through that difficult time. And I called you up because somebody called me and said that you had a difficult time on a show and they sent a link to a theater show that you did. And I said, Kirk, man, this is a rough gig. It looks like you got booed off the stage. And you looked at me and you said, that is a complete falsehood. I got booed on stage. Off stage, everyone was very kind. <laughs> but I didn't even mind that because uh, I, I knew going in, it was, I told Charlie, I'm like, this could go either way. <laughs> but... At one point, there was 4,000 people booing, and I knew the place held 5,000. And I said, come on, man, where's the other 1,000? And then they all booed. But I, I still did my 20 minutes. So 10 minutes in, Charlie came out and gave me a Hershey's chocolate kiss. <laughs> he thought that might help, but it didn't help that they saw him. But he eventually got booed off as well. They were booing me before I even opened my mouth, so I, I didn't take it personally. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you know this podcast, you know I've talked a lot about the documentary I worked on called I Killed JFK, and I've put a lot of effort into this documentary. And finally, after many, many years, my friends at Screen Vision and Chaos Connect have worked together to distribute the film and get a special event theatrical release in selected theaters all across North America. And I'm very excited about it. It's going to be May 31st, two days after John F. Kennedy's 100th birthday. And it features an incredible story about the only man who's ever admitted 
to killing JFK. Uh, the tickets will be on sale on the website ikilledjfk.com, and they'll be up soon. And I greatly appreciate it if you check it out. I know you'll like it a lot, and you'll find it extraordinary like I did. ikilledjfk.com. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody, something I'm thinking of, and you can tell me one line. You can tell me whatever comes to your mind, a sentence, a story, whatever it is. Raya. Uh, it's air backwards. It's the first thing we take in when we're born. It's the last thing we let go of when we die. Well, when my dad was 65 years old, he was trudging in the deep sand, Mission Beach, which he did every morning with a bamboo stick. They called him Bamboo Ben. And as he was trudging with that bamboo stick in the deep sand, and he would, he would do it every morning. He got up every morning. He'd bundle up, knit hat. You could only see his eyes. But he was trudging in the deep sand, and his heart stopped. And with his last breath, <gasps> He didn't know why, but he reached for the sky, and he said, Raya. And his heart started beating again. And he just trudged on. And for the next 15 or 20 years, he would trudge every day with probably 100 people following him. And whenever he'd say, Raya, everyone would say, Raya. And anyone that would see my dad would greet him with a rousing Raya. So when he died, I just put Raya there. And it's usually under a watch band. But I haven't been wearing a watch lately. I don't need to know time. But that's Raya, air backwards. Eventually, I asked him what it was. I'm like, what's Raya? And he just says, it's air backwards. First thing we take in when we're born, last thing we let go of when we die. Matt Dillon. Great director, City of Ghosts. Matt, uh, one of my best pals. I met him in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, he was doing a movie called Kansas, and I was playing in a, a professional tennis tournament in Lawrence, Kansas, a Challenger series. But we were staying at the same hotel, and we met and we became friends. And I lost pretty quick after meeting him. But I stayed a few more days because there was a lot of girls in Lawrence, Kansas. But Matt and I, one of my best pals, still is. That was a long time ago. But City of Ghosts, he put me in. Caitlin Olson. I just don't know. She, she's got a twin. I can tell you. Uh, I hope she finds her way. She seems... Uh, she seems happy. Michael Keaton. Sweetheart. R real nice. I did the post-grad with him. And uh, he's just great. Every time I see him, he's kind. And he was a great comedian and just kind of got tired of it. Once he hit, he never went back. Staying in town versus the road. I don't like flying too much. I'm pretty tall. Unless I can fly first class. When I was doing the test, I could fly first class. And I, I think the road would have been great 
if I'd started stand-up in my 20s, but the road in your 40s is shit unless you're doing theaters or arenas. Russell Brand. I like him. Quick brain. Uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. But uh, I like him. James Kahn. Man, there's a lot of stories about James Kahn, but he was in the City of Ghosts. I mean, these guys are all very cool. Created a ch child. He's created life. John Oliver. Man, he's good. Great guy. Funny, smart, always kind to me. Kevin Costner. Athlete. Cool. Always nice. I remember when I got uh, the postman. He told me when I was, I ran into him at Witsit and he was hitting golf balls. And then he had told me that he had a part for me in the postman. I had met him on Wyatt Earp because I was teaching tennis to Lawrence Kasdan. So I did Wyatt Earp with Kevin. But I wasn't guaranteed to get the postman. But he told me at Witsit that I was going to be in the postman. And then I hit a bucket of golf balls, and I'd never hit the balls further. I'd added tw I added 20 yards to my drive just knowing I had work coming. I used to love those movies because I'd work three months, and I'd have one line. My joke was in the postman, I played a giant stamp, <laughs> and I let Kevin lick me for three months. <laughs> Clint Eastwood. Well, I I like to think that he's my father. <laughs> I mean, I married Allison Eastwood because I loved Clint so much. But uh, how long were you married to Allison? Well, I like to say three movies. <laughs> <laughs> but I married. Don't marry anyone because their father is your favorite actor. But. Uh, there's a lot of, I always remember is like the last thing Clint said to me was like, you son of a bitch. And I was like, you called me son. <laughs> That's all I ever wanted. But we were golfing one, you know, we, we golfed and he said, you know, if you really wanted to golf with me this bad, all you had to do is ask. <laughs> you didn't need to marry. He said lamb chop. But Clint was nice. I love Clint. I'd always liked him even growing up. So it was nice when I could make my dreams come true <laughs> dr phil dr phil man my biggest fan he would do anything for me i'll do anything for him makes me laugh smartest guy i know heath ledger all heart athlete twinkle must have been a little tortured jay leno man he can tell a joke i love jay man he he really uh took a shine to me he liked me I think it was my first TV set. And then he brought me back again. You broke every rule in comedy. Well, because man. I didn't know any of the rules. I was I was such a rookie. You watched that first Tonight Show. The first joke, it's 47 seconds before he gets to the punchline. So he's already gone through 20% of his act with one joke. Then his next group of jokes is rapid fire every seven to eight seconds there's a laugh then he turns around and makes reference to the guys well it was jay and brian williams and i just said 
listen, I don't have a lot of time, but, you know, I want to sit with you guys. But, you know, it's the only set I've ever really posted. It's at KirkFox.com. Amy Poehler. Man, the best. She's a uh, kind, smart, funny, quick, and uh, she liked me. She kept bringing me back for Sewage Joe. Mel Gibson. Man, my favorite. We uh, we met when he was doing uh, Tequila Sunrise with Isai Morales, and I give I gave Mel a tennis lesson, and then we went and had. Uh, a hamburger at Johnny Rockets and he had a 63 blue T-bird and I remember when he was staying on Sunset Boulevard and as we were driving a woman was crossing the street and we stopped for her and it I looked and it was Mitzi Shore this was 10 years before I did comedy but she knew I knew Polly and I remember she looked at me and then looked at Mel Gibson and it was a real, she always called me cowboy. That was what she said to me. She always said, there's no one doing what you're doing. So whatever I was doing, it seemed to resonate with her. She said it never felt like jokes and yet they were all jokes, you know. The late Gary Shandling. Man. My favorite, all heart, smartest guy in the room, tortured. At the top of all my sets, I, I write the word open because that's what he wrote on all his sets. And open to him meant you have to be vulnerable, inviting, and present. And if he knew if he was open, he would do okay. His friends would always remind him, be open. And then it would relax him. But uh, I loved him. I was I was going to get his uh, his Porsche, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. It, it didn't fit in the driveway. Jaron has a very steep driveway. Jaron, your wife. My 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 new wife. I have been told so she has a steep driveway, so I couldn't get the 911 because it would bottom out. But Miss Gary, I mean, that was crazy. Your proudest moment in show business. I'm just, I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud to, I look at the whole thing. I look at everyone I meet, every moment. I'm just proud to be a part of it. I think I, I think, I think I have some real moments coming up because I'm just getting comfortable. And I think until you're truly comfortable and genuine and authentic and able to take a deep breath and be okay with silence, then you can find those moments. I like Anthony Hopkins. He said uh, the greatest thing he learned, if he could tell his younger self anything, it would be, you know, lighten the fuck up. So I'm just trying to lighten the fuck up. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I had a real rough, a real rough set in 2008 on stage where it may have been a, a complete anxiety or a panic attack, but where I froze and couldn't speak three minutes in to a set of comedy. 
and that that changed a lot for me. That was my first failure in life. Up until that moment, I'd never had a failure. It, the night had started at the improv, and it was a showcase for uh, Letterman. And for some reason, things were just starting to come to a head or just something in my mind, but I just wasn't liking who I was on stage. I just, I was starting to feel like a character. I'd had a shitload of success, but I never felt like I was just who I was. I just was never happy. And so that night at the improv, someone came up to me and someone said, oh man, I love that character you're doing. And that kind of started my head spinning. And I went up on stage and I didn't tell a joke, but I got a lot of laughs. But then Eddie Brill was like, listen, you got to come back and at least do some jokes. Eddie Brill was booking the Letterman show at the time. And then after that, I called up to the comedy store because I had a spot up there. And uh, Tommy, who was the booker at the time, he says, oh, if, if you get up here right now, you, you can slide on. My spot, my spot was late, 11.30, and he said, if you come up now, you get on at maybe 10. And you always want to go up when you can. But I knew I was, should have eaten. I always like to have food in me because I, I just need food. But I went right up to the comedy store, and by the time I got there, everyone had showed up. So then I had to wait. Tim Allen was there, and I had just... I was, I was up for a part in his movie, and they had just given it to someone else. It came down to me and another guy. But Tim was there, and he's like, oh, sorry it didn't work out. I'm like, that's all right, all good. And I, I just felt something was off as I was sitting back there waiting for my spot. And then uh, I saw Sebastian go up. Sebastian Maniscalco. And kill. And I was just like, man, he's just talking about real shit, man. I love, I just loved them. And I started thinking about my jokes and they were just jokes. And then finally I went up on stage and right as I started talking, someone in the front row went, ha, ha, ha. And it just kind of triggered something in me. And I started spending too much time with this guy. I'm like, are, are you, did I say something? Ha, ha, okay. So I started telling my jokes. And this guy kept doing that. And I eventually had him thrown out. And then I said something else. And then someone in the back said, you're projecting. And I was. It was the, the most precise heckle. And then the room just started spinning and I felt like I was going to pass out. And I said, Tommy, who's next? And what? And then some, you know, they frantically started to find the other comic. And they brought up Steve Renazizi, another comedian. And that whole thing took three minutes instead of a 15-minute set. And that moment... That was in 2008, September 11th. That changed me for a, a few, a couple of years, because I always knew that I always thought that I always knew it could happen again. So I had to figure out what was causing that much self-hate.
and that that was a that was a big that was a rough night but it it made me who I am now because it made me have to find out who Kirk Fox is and for a while I I just blamed it on not eating but it was much deeper but my whole life I mean my first failure was shit man how old was I then I was I was at least 40 so I had a midlife crisis at 40 you know to the, six years in but I had had no failures up until then no bad sets I'd killed every time and then that happened and the moment that happened I had doubt and I think it's okay to have doubt it makes you realize you're human it makes you feel so I, so that was it I can pinpoint when I started realizing I had to change, become a better person. I'd been pretty selfish up till then. My whole life had only been about me. What advice would you have for the young person in comedy, wants to be an actor, wants to be a comedian, doesn't even have any dreams of it, it just happens, and how do you get to the kind of point in their career where they can sort of have the kind of material that you have, the kind of respect you have? Trust that you're enough. Get on stage as much as you can. Hand the jokes off on a pillow. Don't shove them down an audience's throat. The mic will help you. Pretend like you're selling a 911 Porsche. You don't have to work too hard. You want to be able to just talk, I think. And then if you need to, you can add a little bit as long as it's who you are and you'll save a lot of time if you come out of the gate being okay with silence and remember they've they want to laugh it's never the audience you can find a different angle in but just love the room but love yourself first don't get on stage till you love yourself it's not fair to them and eat a burger eat a burger before you go on that's all Kirk Fox thank you so much for coming I really appreciate it thank you Barry okay I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message a review on the iTunes comment review section and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Five Stara. Thank you, Five Stara, for the five-star review on July 15, 2013. And it reads, excellent dot, 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 as expected. Thank you, Five Stara, for the five-star review. It means a lot to me. Congratulations. You are a winner. 
Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, because you're going far. Life is for the dreamer. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.